Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. And ops in action. There's a, an event that just happened right now. I clicked on that record button and some process somewhere kicked off. And I, I don't even know. I always wonder what it is. Maybe there's some sort of like transcoding media server that's been kicked off or whatever. But it all happens in the blink of an eye. I click record and suddenly that mechanism engages somewhere on the infrastructure side in the back end. And, and then, you know, what yeah. happens if Gosh, I've got to wonder. It's like when you hit record. So you, you did a local recording to your computer, though. I don't think I, no, I think it's all cloud recordings these days. I don't even know if there's a way to do it anymore. Yeah, which is crazy. Somewhere we flipped a bit in the turn servers that are sharing our video feeds and they are taking down and and transcoding the audio or or writing it off to some sort of file for us. And then just pop it in an S3 bucket, right? Yeah, but 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 the fact that it just like, it's never, ever not worked. I've never clicked on the record button and never had it come back to me and say, I, I got nothing, you know, I, try again. actually, I think the reliability of the zoom service is pretty, incredible. I can't really remember a lot of times where I joined a zoom call and things weren't working very well. Yeah. I, I, there are some things that were not availability issues so much as they were just, you know, you kind of walked right in, right into it bugs. Like for example, we, we published a, uh, a zoom webinar I was doing once and then we got zoom bombed by mm-hmm. these, Cretans on on the internet who come want to just yeah moderation kind of the void kind of, yeah you know gating who is there is uh, but as far as the reliability no absolutely it's been it's great and it got got us through the pandemic which I which is incredible you know yeah uh, hats off to anyone who's running peer to peer video systems and trying to figure out how to keep encrypted streams of thing com, things like compliant through servers and different regions yeah. and stuff. Yeah. absolute sorcery and yeah so i i i it's it's always working and actually there used to be a local maybe it's a feature enabled by the admin for the account or whatever there used to be like a button down here local recording or cloud recording it used to be always be local then they introduced cloud and so there was a while when you had both cloud and local and now as far as i know i just hit record and it's a cloud recording only i don't i wouldn't even know where to go to find it locally mm-hmm. um and it, yeah, you would almost kind of think intuitively as a user, right? You you work with Zoom on your computer, and so you think, oh, okay, I own the Zoom call, and I'll yeah. be able to own the audio stream, right? But in between, there are servers, and um, there must be some sensible places in there for those systems to receive a message that says, hey, I'm going to be recording this now. Right. It's all, it's all pretty incredible to me, really. So this is, I guess... I guess what I wonder is how did they build that system? What does the cluster deployment look like? Like, is it thousands of nodes at this point? It must be, you know, like. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's like, say you are in a Zoom call, right? Do you talk to a central API that knows where you are or have you been directed to an API that's local to, you know? Where right, there's discovery. Oh, you can do Zoom on-premise deployments. Wait. You can, you can do, you can allow organizations to deploy meeting connector virtual machines within their internal company networks. In doing so, user and meeting metadata are still managed in the Zoom public cloud. Well, that's kind of important. I, that's the part I wanted to keep off the public cloud. However, all meeting traffic, video, voice, in-meeting chat, and data sharing is hosted in the organization's private cloud. 
how do they do that? So they mentioned virtual machines, but that there's no way they're giving you a bunch of virtual machines, right? Uh, I do know that there are some peer-to-peer -peer, um, protocols that help clients find each other over networks. The most popular being the internet. Uh, but yeah, there are these stun and turn servers that are important in WebRTC. Yeah. And you can use stun and tur turn servers for establishing tunnels and connections to peer-to-peer -to -peer machines for all sorts of purposes. I know that uh, Tailscale, the peer-to-peer yeah. -peer wire guard, you know, direct-to-node encrypted VPN that I love talking about because I think <laughs> it's just so revolutionary, uh, uses uh, turn servers and derp this protocol to um, help clients find each other in certain nat traversal use cases. Nice. This problem of how do, can you get two computers to talk directly to each other rather than going through some central place? Uh, right. It's a really interesting question that I think should inspire the sort of internet that people deserve. You know, the sort of products and systems that allow people to have democratic access to the highways of information that we have. And to the capabilities of their computers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you like know, I think that definitely the way that we've built things and sort of what is incentivized yeah. by our system of economics and sort of just being inspired by what's come before is we've ended up with a lot of centralized systems and these are useful and right. as long as it's profitable for someone to run those things, then we end up with very nice systems. But yeah, more peer-to-peer -peer networking uh, in the future. I'd really like to see that. Well, let's talk about that. But hold on one sec. Let me back to that last bit here on Zoom. I just Googled uh, uh, Zoom on-premise deployment, okay? And they actually spilled the tea on some interesting stuff. They have, I think it's not decentralized. I think it's actually, they have a centralized, something called an, a multimedia router, MMR, mm -hmm. each of which supports up to 200 concurrent participants. So depending on the scope of the system, you'll need to calculate the MMRs and the meeting connector controllers that are needed. For example, if you need to support up to a thousand meeting participants at any given time, you would need to deploy at least five MMRs, a meeting connector VM plus four additional MMR VMs. This setup would sort of support up to a thousand concurrent meeting participants. So this is like, this is actually, and then, oh, even crazier. Okay. The on-premise recording connector can support up to two simultaneous recordings for each CPU core. So that doesn't sound like it scales cheaply at all, actually. No. Oh, you need a lot yeah. of cores there. Yeah. Yeah. If you're talking about thousands of recordings at the same time, you know, this is thousands of CPU cores. That doesn't, even if you've got four or whatever, or eight or whatever per machine, per physical box, you know, uh, or even many more. Yeah, I do know that uh, anything with audio transcoding tends to be pretty timing sensitive. And yeah. also that uh, you might make decisions as an infrastructure person, especially trying to maintain some sort of tenancy guarantee that, oh. you know, some memory of this transcoding is not in any way going to be in a context where it could be jumbled up right. know, memory from this transcoding routine, where you might end up with some cool mashup of somebody's one-on-one -on -one conversation with the all hands, you know? 
Right. Um, the, the all hands leaking public information and somebody's private doctor visit all get mashed <laughs> up into one feed that gets streamed on YouTube. Okay, wait, wait, going back even more. This They're using SIP, so the virtual room connector can support two, just two, SIP H323 connections at a time. The VM can be given more resources to support more simultaneous SIP H323 connections. For example, if you need to support up to four SIP H323 devices at a given time, you need to have a single VRC with eight CPU cores and at least eight gigs of memory. Wait, what? So if you need to support four devices, you need at least eight gigs of memory. That doesn't, that's two gigs of memory per, is that, am I misunderstanding this? Is that per client? What is that? Um, a load balancer is also available for large, yeah, I mean, I get, when, it, when they say large scale, do they mean like eight clients? What is that? That sounds insane. Wow, okay, the fact is you can run Zoom on your local machine. And because we can do that, they have to tell you kind of what, what that looks like. And it doesn't look cheap. This is, you were just talking about it. As long as there's some way to make it profitable for somebody mm -hmm. to do whatever you're operationalizing, then at this point, because we have an infinite infrastructure at our fingertips, it, you know, we can do it, right? Um, yeah, I imagine also that there are engineering teams at Zoom who are hyper-focused on making sure that Zoom works well on clients that have limited resources. But as soon as you are talking about SLAs and contracts for people to run things and scale on their own hardware, you're like, we would like 16 times the, the RAM, please, right? Just to make sure that it works perfectly all the time. I bet that's how they run in their own systems too, you know? Um, a little buffer never hurt. I don't know. Yeah, compute efficiency uh, is definitely a cost differentiator these days. Uh, oh, sure. Some people say that that's why you should use Kubernetes. I disagree in a lot of cases, but it, it well, certainly can justify, you know, sort of the density. Yeah, that's exactly. That's I think I, I I actually I do agree with that because this whole Zoom thing they're talking about deploying virtual machines, VMs. They're not talking about. Uh, like an like a like a helm chart or something, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I that has to account for a lot of the weight there. Whereas if you can core out that operating system layer and you know just assume that just take that for granted, there's a base operating system image there. Things get cheaper, you know. What what goes from thousands of megs to hundreds, and uh, yeah, certainly removing the need to run system D in a Linux kernel and all of your security orgs, system agents and stuff, you know, for Huge. each virtual machine that's needed inside of your Zoom on-premises deployment would definitely give you a little bit more efficiency. Although I think, you know, kind of coming back to those hardware requirements, it sounds like the team was interested in making sure that the software ran as best as it could as long as in whatever hardware situation you had, right? Yeah, I kind of wonder if they're using... I are they using virtual machines in their public offering or are they using Kubernetes behind the scenes there? You know, it, it, that, that means that, that that means that they had to package it up as VMs in one case and as Kubernetes as another. And it could just be that they're doing, are they like just packaging up nodes, Kubernetes nodes in each virtual machine? And that's, you know, just deploy that into your cluster and Bob, you're uncle, you got yourself a scalable. Uh, I would guess that Zoom being a public organization, there's probably some information about their cloud spend and infrastructure spend. Um, and that might be a little bit illuminating about at least the scale of the infrastructure yeah. that they use and maybe also the style. 
I'd be very interested. I would say there's probably case studies out there or whatever. Uh, but if you find out, you, you're, you're duty bound to come back to the podcast and share. Um, <laughs> by the way, who are you? Can you tell the audience so I don't butcher it? Uh, I don't know. We've just been talking. But what's up, friends? Yeah, it's it's cool to be here. Uh, I'm with the venerable Josh Long, who needs no introduction. And my name is Lee Kapili. Uh, I've been in the Kubernetes space for a little bit and also just containers and cloud native, also configuration management from puppet days. Uh, and so that tells you a little bit about where it came from. You know, I am a software engineer turned platform infrastructure person turned developer advocate working actually with Josh on an amazing yeah. team of developer advocates uh, with the Tanzu and Spring ecosystems at VMware. So our team is amazing. Uh, really awesome you and I, you and I both fly the team Tasha banner, uh, you know? Yeah. Tasha, Tasha is, Tasha is our fearless leader. Oh yeah. And unironically, she, uh, she's got, you know, uh, she's got, fearlessness the size of texas texas you know she's amazing um uh, so anyway yeah you and i both lucked out there see you you actually earned your spot on the team me i just kind of they built the team around me because i was just already there and i'm quite sure i wouldn't get hired if if i weren't already in the team i'm quite sure i wouldn't get hired again uh but uh but we both I mean, it, ended it up felt like such a for me too you know yeah it is crazy crazy it's like a you ever see that TV show of Portlandia? Yes. Yeah. Where the where they talk about Portland being the place where young people go to retire. I kind of feel like that sometimes with you know, uh, developer advocacy. You know, like it's just it's just such a pleasant, wonderful way to experience life. You know, uh, it, it is really nice being an advocate. You know, we well, under talking. There's That's a lot of curious people in our, in our industry, and if you're an advocate being natural, naturally curious kind of leads you to wonderful places. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so I, and I don't know if that's, I should say, I don't actually know if that holds true for other companies. I'm sure it does, you know, probably, but uh, I'm just saying in my experience working for the VMware family uh, of companies, you know, in my sole capacity as a spring developer advocate, life has been great. Life has been pretty darn good so i don't know you know this uh you know here's a fun question um and i have some things i can think of that are good answers but i'm curious josh what are some of the coolest things you've seen developer advocate devrel dev experience types folks do like when you think back and it's like the hall of fame or like the the magnum opus of somebody's like kind of portfolio you know, the person that I think of as being the epitome of a good developer advocate doesn't identify as a developer advocate. Um, so there's that. Like, I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, so I understand the, the theory of it all, right? I, like in theory, um, nobody goes, nobody buys windows, right? They buy the operating systems the the applications that run on Windows, and mm -hmm. so, in theory, to incentivize people to that platform, you've got to make the case to build apps on it, right? Yeah, otherwise, there's no platform. But a platform without apps is mm. is is pointless. You need you know? your SolidWorks and your Photoshop's. And yeah, yeah, and word processing and just the basic things that make the world go round. You know, like 
I wake up every day and I check my calendar. Imagine if there was no app that did calendar, then I wouldn't do that, I guess. I would just not have that feature in my life and it would be pointless to start buying operating systems uh, if I needed that. Um, so so I, that's the theory, right? And so Microsoft, you know, to their credit, um, they came out very early on and they realized that nobody gives a, a rat's patootie about Win32, right? It just doesn't, it's not interesting in of itself. You can't, you can't get grandpa and grandma talking to their grandkids with Win32. You, you can't get that resume off to the next prospect employer with Win32. You need Microsoft Word, you need some, you need Zoom, you need something that does all this stuff, right? And so, so the developer advocates in, in Microsoft, I think most famously, they sort of went out there and made the case that you could be building amazing stuff on their platform. And they've, and Microsoft to their credit, they've been really focused on keeping backwards compatibility for developers. They don't want to break apps on that platform. They, they, the apps are the most important thing, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I think uh, these days, you know, to make a platform successful, uh, any, and, and a lot of companies would describe themselves as platforms and all these software as a service companies are basically platforms, right? And so now, every company that has any kind of offering, almost all of them are software as a service. They've got an API and therefore they need somebody to help them make the case to win the war of ideas for building apps on that platform to incentivize people, to encourage people to that. So I don't know what a great example is, what a particularly great example of that is, but obviously the big obvious ones are, you know, Microsoft, right? They did a great job. They were the first company I've ever, ever known to go out there and really do a great job with developer advocacy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can think of uh, somebody who was working with Microsoft previously, Chloe Condon, uh, yeah, doing incredible great. advocacy work. Um, yeah. Also, Clippy. Ashley McNakamara, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. with the Gopher Eyes Me, I think. Yeah, uh, she's uh, Ashley used to be on my team on this team. She was under Team Tasha. Yeah. And um, you, you have a, so like one of the most iconic things I think I ever uh, saw Chloe Condon do is. Uh, she made a robot sing with her, right? You know, and she brought her like theater background and a little bit of performance art and um, did a rendition of Baby It's Cold Outside with a robot that was talking about Seattle weather or something like that, you know? And uh, it's just, it's hilarious and it really connected with me, you know? Uh, yeah. And now I kind of remember the content of that demo, you know, or oh, when you... Like I think cool a lot movie. of people, they think about Kelsey Hightower yeah. uh, explaining the value of compute optimization on Kubernetes, right? which is, it's funny. I was just talking about how that's not the point of Kubernetes, but it's a, it is a big selling point that a lot of uh, CIOs can, uh, can really sell on like, oh, that's going to save costs. And so now we can spend time replatforming. Right. But Kelsey does the, the Tetris demo, you know, right. that... The Kubernetes schedule is is in there trying to figure out how to perform placements so that rows can clear, you know, and that if you Tetris stack all of your pods correctly together, then this will be good for your infrastructure. Okay. Doing that demo while he's playing Tetris, you know, on it's stage, awesome. you know, that sort of performance art um, that brings an analogy and like really helps people actually remember the content is uh, really, really incredible. <laughs> okay, now I see what you're saying. So, yeah, I I once saw I've got a bunch of those. I once saw Kelsey do a demo where he created a Android action or something like that to create a new cluster. So he just spoke into the phone, and then like a minute later in his Google Cloud console, there's a new GKE cluster. Hey Google, deployment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
it, it not just deploy the, it deployed a new cluster right it was sorry to anyone who i just triggered the oh, google assistant sorry. you oh well. um <laughs> nobody uses hey google except for the people that all have android devices which is like the majority of people so i take that back in retrospect i was wrong uh everybody uses google, hey google how dare you spam them all um but if you had say, said hey, hey windows like nobody would there's no nobody's using windows mobile uh cortana so, i believe is that's, i thought that, that was cool that they brought a, the voice assistant's name from the halo series i didn't realize that and uh, i'm gonna forget it um okay so there's so yeah he did that demo that was cool i um gosh in terms of like cool with bang demos there's a guy named uh simon ritter in the java ecosystem who used to be a java developer advocate uh, at Oracle, and uh, he was just known for his insane like demos. You know, he once uh, built a uh, Wii Wii controller demo with Java ah. to you know to do like you could stand in front and it was running on Linux, right? You could run, you could stand on uh, stand on a, on on a on a floor with a camera pointed at you, and he wrote code that would respond to your actions using your that emotions, Wii. and you'd be able yeah, to yeah interpret those things the position of the controller in 3d space with java right. he wrote Simple. another program to interact with the, his audi you know with java and it's just like well that's pretty cool you know but the coolest example of a developer advocate again it's not people that are developed they don't identify as developer advocates it was actually a 13 year old boy uh named shadaj ladad right he is the son of my former teammate um uh, the amazing the legendary ramnivas ladad he created uh um, you know, he, he was, if you've ever, in the Spring ecosystem, we have something called aspect-oriented programming. And uh, mm -hmm. if you've ever done anything like that, you probably heard of Aspect J. And he was, you know, um, uh, key in introducing that into the Spring ecosystem. So he's really amazing, just a smart guy, nice, one of the nicest human beings ever. But his kid, oh my God, one day I would like to work for him. Maybe I could sweep floors or make coffee or something. I don't know what I could do. Something but, uh, you know how to actually do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely couldn't keep up with him, but I could definitely like serve him coffee or something. You know, I would be okay with that. Uh, he, when he was 13, he spoke at the Scala Days. He was 14, I don't know, or maybe he was 12. I don't know, he was just so young. He spoke at Scala Days, which is a software conference um, in New York, right? New York City. <clears throat> so I remember him doing this demo. And Lee, I, I tell you, man, I don't remember everything because I, I kind of memory hold some of it because I couldn't stand how cool it was. Um, I don't know in what order he did it, but he said, oh, hey, I'm, I'm learning Scala. I'm learning this new language that's been around since like 2008. And this is like 2013. So this is a, or 2014, whatever. It's a long time ago. And, um, and so he's learning this new programming language called Scala. And he says, oh, you know, I've been doing the usual things. Like I, I learned how to use it to automate the generation of uh, newsletters for my school. I was like, oh, that's so cute. That's adorable. Good for you, little guy. And then it's like, uh, and then he's like, oh, I also took uh, the uh, Coursera class on um, bioinformatics, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a big jump. Yeah. <laughs> he went from newsletters to bioinformatics. It's like, okay, well, good for you. You, you're, So you're, you're ready to go to college for bioinformatics, are you at the age of 12 or whatever it was? Uh, so then he did that. And he's like, yeah, I did that. And then he did, um, then he's like, well, I also got Scala to run on Android. So he built a game of Snake on Android, right? Using Scala. At the time, nobody had made Scala run on Android. So there's two parts. There's one that he built the game and two that he made the language work there in the first place. Okay. It's like, oh, okay. Holy moly. You know, what are you, what's going on here? This is, we're like. You can imagine how difficult um, 
that, not if you're that guy. That would be to like go through all the language bindings and try to tie them to the Android APIs, right? If you're if you're a genius prodigy uh, like him, then it's no it's, deal at all. it's a complete it's a complete ecosystem yes. that has its own idea of what an operating system should provide to you. You know, as but an wait, let me. I got I've got to tell you the last thing he did then. Oh, so I told you he he got that game of Snake working in Android, right? Then. Oh God, I'll never forget. I mean, I, I'm st- my mouth gets dry just thinking about it now, almost a decade later. Then he's like, oh, by the way, one more thing, you know, like the Steve Jobs kind of thing. Uh, he says, I, there's this new headset out that monitors brainwaves, right? Mm-hmm. You can use it to ma- measure electronic, electronic uh, magnetic sort of yeah. uh, activity in the brain. Uh, so then he used that to capture patterns about his brain uh, and use that to then control the game of Snake. On his Android device. On his Android device. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so was the brainwave device also connected to the Android device? I don't know. I don't remember. It was the most obscene thing. I like who does this? I, it, that would be a cool demo for anybody, no matter what their age. Any one of those would have been a memorable, like better than Kelsey Hightower demo, except for the newsletter generating thing. And then he did like six of them. I, I've forgotten some of them. He did like six of them in like forty-five minutes, in clear, perfect, comprehensible. A plain spoken language, uh, and then it was, and then it was like the first question. I mean, he got a he got a standing ovation, right? If I was fifty and I did delivered any one of those demos, I'd feel pretty darn proud of a job well done. You know, he was 13, 13. Uh, it was absolutely the most insane thing ever. So anyway, if you're hiring, uh, dude, you know, uh, I, I submit that I would be very. I could make coffee. I could do uh, whatever, whatever it is you're gonna do. And you're going to get us to uh, the next space system or whatever. I don't know. Put what. the brainwave machine on. Yeah. yeah he's, I'm sure he's like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what he is. Then he's our, he's our Tony Stark, you know, uh, he's going to be amazing. Or uh, probably is already amazing. I haven't caught up with him in, like I said, a long time, but you know, he's probably already out, out of college now. You make me think um, what could brainwave technology, right? Like these. Uh, these EEGs that people are strapping to their head bring to uh, cluster yeah. operations. I don't know. Yeah. It sounds cheesy. It sounds like a real minority report type type setup. You know, I throw on my VR headset, my brain detector. Yep. Decide how many how many pods need to be in my deployment, or what ratio my autoscaler has to be set to. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You can totally do this. Right. You can like. Coop, you can control Coop Cuddle with a, you know, we can create a new app called Brain Cuddle. Um, Brain Cuddle. Yeah. <laughs> There's some interesting opportunities here. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, those that kind of stuff. Does that count? Is that what you're asking about? Absolutely. Yeah, that's totally what I was asking about. I also love that that you kind of broke down, you know, what it means, uh, kind of the case for developer advocacy and what it means to do that right, both in your product kind of in-house and then, you know, developing the ecosystem. Um, I mean, that's really important parts. That could be wrong. Yeah, it it could be wrong. Yeah, but if so, Microsoft's been doing it wrong then, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever they're doing, I want to do that. You know, I I, so okay. They're not the only company anymore, though, right? Obviously, uh, so there's lots of different companies out there with great developer advocates. But I I do want to take issue with um, the like. So I don't necessarily agree that having a great demo. Actually, I. I strongly disagree that having a great demo is tantamount to good developer advocacy because it impresses, but it doesn't inform mm-hmm. usually, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so much more that you have to do to actually take care of people. Right? Yeah, they don't. They they've walked out 
they, it's like going to see a, a Marvel movie. Of course, it's satisfying. Of course, it's a good use of your few hours in the theater. Mm-hmm. But what could you do at the end of it that you couldn't do before besides spoil it for your friends? You know, um, <laughs> like that's it, right? The, the, the having been there moment, that, that's a, a thing. It's like a concert. You go to see, you know, um, somebody perform live. And again, nobody's saying it's not a good use of your time or your money. But again, is that develop advocacy? If you go see, you know, uh, Prince, well, no, he's no longer alive. Rest in peace. But uh, if you go see somebody live, you know, I don't know. Is that developer advocacy? I don't think it is. I think there's, there's got to be some meaningful, actionable, like, insight. Gleaned yeah, from. I mean, if you think about the function of advocacy, what does it mean to advocate for somebody, right? Yeah. You need to have an intimate relationship and an intimate understanding of somebody before you can really advocate for them and before they will let you advocate. Yeah for them, right? To do, to do things on their behalf, to make their life, their worlds, their experience better. Let's not get ahead. Like if, if having an idea, if knowing what I was doing was important to my job, please, you know, don't give them ideas. Like, let's not make this too much harder for me. Come on. Well, I mean, it's like, then what's the function of a demo, right? If you need yeah. this intimacy, you need this relationship, this is where we connect, right? This is where we have yeah. fun and we talk to each other and language that makes sense to developers. And we inspire, which is also yeah. a useful function. Right. So we uh, want to ignite ideas and we want to inspire creation and sharing. Um, yeah. But ultimately, this is just so we get to know each other. Right? <laughs> but the real stuff, it's, it happens in the docs. It happens yeah. in the APIs. It happens yeah. in the usability, the UX. Yeah, the the leaky abstractions. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the it's the day to day. So uh, so all that to say, you I think did a very good job of developer advocacy. Uh, you you do now, of course, obviously that goes without saying. But what I'm saying is, before you were working with our uh, with our uh, good friends um, working on uh, Flux, right? Like yeah, uh, WeaveWorks. And, yeah, we've our good friends at WeaveWorks. Sorry, yeah, our good friends at WeaveWorks. Um, uh, and in the Flux community, which is not just the WeWorks thing, of course. Yeah. Right, right, of course. But I mean, you, with our good friends there, uh, you you did great work, but you were doing it primarily as an engineer, but you were out there constantly making the case for it uh, in conferences, in, in presentations, in docs, and blogs, uh, et cetera. And that is, I, I think, the epitome of what it means to be a good developer advocate is to be able to work the code, but also help you know, again, if you write great code in the basement, nobody knows and who cares, right? You haven't, code in a vacuum is pointless. You, you need to be able to convince people. And so uh, whether you're doing it with an official developer advocate hat or not, it doesn't matter, you know? You you yeah. were a great developer advocate, whether that I was your title or not. Yeah, I was technically by title a developer experience engineer, right? Okay. Somebody who is focused technically um, by title, I suppose, on what it means for people to have a good experience when they are using Kubernetes, when they are configuring a mesh network, when they are trying to figure out how the heck to do GitOps in a way that's sustainable and can actually work for their team. And, um, and so that's a lot of pieces. You know, it's community, it's RFCs to Flux, it's engineering on things that are closed source to figure out that if, if it works for our customers. And then getting back out there and then trying to communicate what I've learned um, from my own experience with other practitioners. Yeah. So, but, but, so we would agree that a huge part of that is that uh, boots on the ground 
dynamic, yeah. right? You've got to be there. You've got to live there. Mm-hmm. You can't just be in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, being I, in front of people is not enough. There's there's also right. sort of the work behind the scenes that you have to do to actually just make things not suck. Totally, 100%. That's exactly it. So that's the other thing I don't think people appreciate is for all my terrible, terrible onstage jokes, there's still, you know, that's one hour of my day. And then there's still, you know, 23 other hours. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not like I just go home and pick my nose, you know. Uh, it's There's a lot of other stuff. There's follow through that. Imagine sometimes you're DMing, you know, members of the spring team being like, hey, is this thing still broken or should this thing be acting this way? Or why does it suck to implement something in this way? And this seems to be how people do it everywhere. Yeah. So the what, the tact I, I have, the spring team is an interesting, um, uh, they have, a, it's, when I was younger, I, I used to think, well, I, I've got this and therefore, um, what you know you, well, you know you know what the, the definition of a bug is whatever doesn't meet the user expectation um but that can only be true after you've been sufficiently uh, uh you know indoctrinated in what you're what you're trying to do so if you you know i'm saying there's a there's a delta there's a spectrum there if i know everything there is to be known about a given thing and it doesn't do what i expect then that's a bug but if you don't know everything, then it might do something you don't expect. And that's just because you didn't read the docs yet, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, there's a gap there. So, so as, because that's always, it's, a, there's always a continuum of have I read enough to be able to assert that it's my understanding that's infallible and therefore the code is fallible. No, of course. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of the time when I go to the spring team these days, it's like, I think I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> like, and, it, and it, I take that posture that it's me. I have screwed up somewhere. And the nice thing about that is, if I do that, the spring team, if there is a situation where, and, and it's rare, granted, but if, if, if there's a situation, situation where I didn't screw it up, they're the first ones to say, oh no, that's our bad, right? We, we screwed that up, right? Like, uh, uh, and that's, I love that. I don't, but I don't go to the spring team saying, hey, you screwed this up uh, because dollars to donuts, I probably screwed it up, you know? Uh, but I, I get what you're saying, you know, that's, uh, uh, so what was your, so you got that developer experience. So you were looking at WeWorks mm-hmm. and, to me, this is like one of the ultimate examples of a developer-focused company. You cannot be that close to the bread uh, of a given company without having some uh, exposure to the the ways that your applications interact with the the platform, right? And and so WeWorks sits right there in that like they are both. They are both the operating system, the the platform, if you want them to be, but they're also the observability and. Uh, mm-hmm. and all that depends on making it palatable to developers, right? What? Yeah. What was your why go there instead of like, I don't know, whatever it is you were you were contemplating? Like, you know, some of it was just relationships, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember back in when I was first really learning about the industry, and I was getting into Docker, right? And I was starting to meet some of the Docker team and I started building and hacking and demoing things and running the Docker meetup with a friend of mine here in the Denver area that the Weaveworks folks, they really understood this new space and they did it in a way that I really agreed with that they had an ethos about the way that they published and maintained their software, that it was open that you could come and you could see and you could file an issue and that 
real people who were working on the software and cared deeply about it and the people who were using it would respond to you. Yeah. And so I saw Weaveworks as one of the central influencers in how cloud native and containerization was developing. And I, I saw what they were doing and I met some of the people sort of by chance. It was actually, um, I ended up staying in an Airbnb in Copenhagen for DockerCon 17. Because when I had landed, um, my Airbnb was not responding. And, and so that Airbnb that I ended up at that night, Liz Rice said, oh, let me introduce you to Ilya Dimitrenko. Uh, he and Stefan Pradhan, they might be able to house you for the week at their flat. And, um, and that's sort of how the beginning of the Weaveworks relationship for me when I was still a practitioner, when I was still building platform, started. And um, I got to know Ilya and, and Stefan well there. And at some point, Alexis Richardson, the CEO there, had... Who was also on the show, by the way, there's an episode. Yeah, yeah, you've, you've had a podcast with Alexis. Um, One and only. <laughs> he's, he's quite a sharp fellow. I always uh, love bantering yeah. him. But uh, he introduced me to Lucas Kotstrom, uh, one of the uh, more notable early contributors to Kubernetes, um, building a tool called KubeVM, uh, something that would provision clusters and still used widely today, even yeah. in our Tanzu suite of products um, and projects. But yeah, um, just meeting Lucas, meeting Ilya, meeting Stefan, and I met Tamo Nakahara, um, she is the VP of developer experience there at Weave now. Um, she was just managing the team back then, and I met her at, at DockerCon in the US. Um, you know, it's it's all just like kind of the these like paths and these people that you meet. I think the only reason I was at that DockerCon in Austin um, in 2017 was because uh, Jerome Pedazzoni had like pulled some strings. I met a, a gal named Julie Gunderson at a DevOps days here in Denver. Right. She's like, I know Jerome, you want to talk to him? And then yeah. they got me a pass to DockerCon. It was just some twerp at the time. You know, yeah. that's it's, it's kindness. It's really a story of kindness. Right. Um, but it's also if proficiency. So what were you doing? I don't, cause I know what you're about to say. You're too nice. What were you about to say? Well, you were, you were about to say that you, the community helped you out. And I just want to say that they didn't help out a lot of other people. And there's a reason there was no point. Like they couldn't have, they couldn't have given that Docker pass, Docker con pass to some to everyone. random yeah. stranger sitting in the, in the supermarket, right? Like uh, it was valuable to give it to you because you would have done something useful with it. What were you doing before? What, what landed? What were you doing before you got to Weaveworks? Like you said, you were building platforms. That's well, true. Yeah, and I, I was contributing a little bit um, at the time before I, um, before I joined Weave. You know, I had started contributing to some Helm charts and um, through knowing Lucas, through that kind of like string of stories of how I got involved with the Docker uh, community and with Weave, um, I began contributing to Kubidium. We started using Kubidium for a bare metal cluster that I had built at Beatport along with some of my team members there. Yeah. And uh, we were, you know, at a co-location here in the Denver Tech Center and I drove there and learned how to cut cables and terminate them. <laughs> And uh, we built a Kubernetes cluster and I thought, you know, gosh, it'd be great if this thing was HA, but um, right now Kubernetes doesn't do that. And the reason that it doesn't do that is because of etcd. Uh, we, we can't stand up multi-cluster etcd 
easily with Kubit-AM. You have to, it's very custom. Right. And um, I looked into it and I'm like, oh, the reason that it can't do this is because of private key infrastructure. Like we don't have the ability to set up a separate CA and a bunch of MTLS stuff. And I'm like, you know, I, I've done a little bit of Golang. Let me go look around in Kubit-AM and see, you know, can I copy and paste some stuff and plumb all of the flags and write the tests. And then you, you end up on this journey of contributing, you know, yeah, and, and that's how I kind of got my first changes into Kubernetes core. So you um, introduced multi, you know, HA. Yeah, it was a, it was mutual TLS for multi-node etcd um, wow. to Kubernetes. That was um, my intro to the Kubernetes core code base. Um, before that, I had contributed to a Kubernetes 6 project called external DNS because I had run into a usability logging bug um, when I was using the Google Cloud external DNS provider for Beatport's Kubernetes platform. And right. um, this logging bug had led me down a wrong path and had wasted like six hours of my life. And I read the code and realized why I was doing it and refactored the code a little bit. So that was my first Kubernetes org contribution before Kubernetes. Wow. Oh, okay. see, it all just, it, it, what they say is true. You just scratch your own itch. It'll lead places, you know? True. I mean, and it's just, I think sometimes, um, you know, I, I got lucky in that I had a career start where I got to build software that was platform and developer yeah. experience focused, right? Well, so that was before Beatport and, you know, I was working with AT&T and DirecTV at that time. Um, so, and so you're empathizing with people's pain. Yeah, right? and when I had this logging bug, and it just caused me so much pain, and I just knew that just things shouldn't be this way. Like, right. just, it's not supposed to be like this. And you just have mm -hmm. to change it because somebody else is going to have this experience next right. week and the week after that, and it's not going to change until something changes. Right? Yeah. Broken windows. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so, okay. What? So at one point you were like uh jobless and um and then you had a, a fork in the road you could either go do uh software and platformy kind of stuff or you could become like a rich handsome billionaire why why did you choose to become the software engineer what was your motivation for getting into that that grind in the first place you know you know i'm gonna say kindness again i think when i was really young um i just thought that my uncle was so cool you know, I'm a Filipino American. My family is a story of immigrants, at least on my mom's side. And uh, my uncle on on my mom's side, uh, he's passed away now. Rest in peace, Cesar. But um, he was working IT at a hospital. You know, and he was just a cool, smart guy. Yeah. And sometime along middle school, he, as a Christmas present, took a decommissioned laptop from their like extra inventory and gave it to me. <laughs> oh wow. And um, I, I didn't really have a lot of, uh, you know, I wasn't enfranchised with a lot of resources to run all of those super cool and important apps that make Windows really useful, right? You know, right. you got to pay for those things. And some, you know, twerp in middle school doesn't have the money to do that. So that's how I found piracy, right? <laughs> I think the statute of limitations has gone on this. Um, right. So um, good to talk about know. how, you know, I... Exactly. I You're just lucky enough to benefit. pirated a lot of software that had to run batch. Uh, hypothetically, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, that's, that was my intro to, to programming and 
you know, directory hierarchies and yeah. registry edits. And eventually I, I learned how to run Linux, you know, cause there was a lot of free software. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And, you know, uh, when I moved to Colorado, some extenuating circumstances, there was an intro to computer science class at a very, uh, very kind of well-resourced high school that I ended up being in the school district of intentional choices by my dad. And, um, yeah, it was, I was like, I don't care that there's six people registered in that and that it's the second semester already. Like I want to be in that room because <laughs> I really like computers and I really like what's happening in technology right. and I like jailbreaking my iPhone and, you yeah. know, running custom software and making things do cool. I want to be a creator. I want to solve right. problems and own my future instead of, you know, maybe some of these uh, things that you see in your life where it's more constraints and limitations. Or you're consuming somebody else's version of your future, which is yeah. never satisfying. You know, yeah, I wasn't interested in uh, necessarily in, you know, having other people like dictate what my world should be like. Like information right. is freedom. And um, and that's that's kind of why what got me into software. Now, that computer science program that was just budding at the time turned into something very beautiful. It was led by an uh, incredible educator who's doing great work. Her name is Jocelyn Wen. And Jocelyn kind of became a little bit of a mom for me when I didn't have one, you know? Um, and so that, you know, just it's, it's kindness that brought me to computers and it's curiosity that helped me stay. So. That's dope. It's good for, good for the community. I hope it's good for you too. Uh, yeah, that's good. That's okay. So that we went, we, we managed to go all the way back. Now let's work forward again. So now, You've already done some stuff with AT&T and DirecTV. You've done platformy kind of stuff. Um, it seems like you have an appetite for the lower level, right? The the infrastructure. Yeah, the pain. Yeah, the glue. Yeah, the infrastructure. Because it is. I I definitely like, miss my application dev days. You know, like being someone who sets up a build and it's like, oh, there's this cool technology called Vue. I'm gonna pull that in. It's only version .9 right now, but yeah. <laughs> you know it seems cool. Like, let's let's get that running and let's pull this database in that allows us to do graph queries and whatever. Right. It's it really fun, but I don't get to touch that as often as I uh, I miss it for sure. Well, yeah, but there's it's not like there's not like there's a shortage of interesting problems out there. So so now you're doing infrastructure kind of stuff. You're firmly in the uh, Kubernetes community and the Docker community. I mean, you mentioned. Uh, uh, you know, the, do you have a, as well, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, so Docker, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, 2011, and then Kubernetes 2014. WeaveWorks a week before Kubernetes comes out is formed, um, and uh, and then you join WeaveWorks. Some of the, you know, I think uh, the the one of the big names in the zeitgeist of the Kubernetes community is is WeaveWorks, obviously, uh, and especially then, especially earlier on. You know, I mean. It's very hard. Yeah, to find real thought leaders in the space for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, just pioneering GitOps itself, um, but also even before that with the WeaveNet CNI, um, you know, making flat emulated layer two networks uh, to do cross cluster kind of stuff. Really, really innovative. Yeah. Huge. So wait, so let's talk about GitOps, right? This is actually, I would have, at what point, so again, I, I think the interesting problems live where application development and infrastructure development connect or collide. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah. A lot of very interesting problems when you start to talk about the 
constraints of this data is getting too big or there's too much latency between these components, right? Those or are I, application I problems and build. infrastructure problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But also things like I want to deploy my software. Like, yeah, couldn't be <laughs> yeah. more fundamental. Yeah, other right? basics, you know, continuous delivery. Yeah. Um, yeah testing. Uh, very so tell stuff is what you want it to be. Yeah, exactly. So can you tell me about what 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 is GitOps? What is Flux? Why would I use that instead of a Jenkins? Yeah, I think to, um, to make install? I'm going to start on the question of what is GitOps by saying that GitOps is continuous delivery. Uh, and I think there's been some hot think pieces by some really smart people um, talking about how GitOps is just marketing jargon. And I am here to authoritatively tell you that it's not, it's something specific that is a subset of continuous delivery, okay. right? Um, so GitOps is new in a way that it's an evolution of things that we've known and have, that we've done for a long time, right? You can look at what's been done in the DevOps community with continuous delivery. Say, let's look at configuration managements like systems like puppets um, or Chef, right? Which are often driven by some sort of control repo, sometimes there's more than one of them. And then we've got either push or pull based agents that are reconciling the desired state of things. So that's converged infrastructure, right? That's the idea that you've got a static box that has binaries and applications that are running. And uh, there's something that looks at some repository and then pulls down or gets pushed into, uh, you know, the changes get pushed into it and then Puppet or chef, they sit there on the box and they re re swizzle the uh, the box to mm -hmm. look like mm -hmm. a new declared state. But you're you're taking existing things and trying to figure out the delta and ar arrive at that new level. But that's not the same as immutable. Yeah, measure. you know the key words uh, that really resonate here when you want to just talk about value problems. When you just want to yeah. talk about why a business would even be interested in this in the first place yeah. is we are separating the knowledge about what we need from our infrastructure to run our applications, right? Yeah. That information that actually operates your business is very important. It is the intellectual property that delivers your organization's mission. And it is it from the very beginning of what is the algorithm, what is the logic, what's the app, all the way to the needs that satisfy that problem, the compute, the networking information, the policies, the layers and, and infrastructure that's necessary to, to keep things running with all of the basic needs. And so you, you need these basic things to build the compute platform that solves your problem, that runs your apps. That's really important IP. And we wanna separate that from the computer that actually does it. Yeah. Right? We want to store that IP. We want to version it because it's actually not something that's static, right? Your business's mission changes as you have new customers, as your organization serves new members, right? And the people that contribute to that mission, they change all yeah. of the time. And so this intellectual property, if we can separate it and we can pull it into systems that are designed to be collaborative and designed to version things, then okay. now you're getting a really solid base for something that's actually a little bit more and something that's also a subset of, in ways, of continuous delivery, of DevOps, 
right? right. Where the big idea of GitOps is how do we work together? And what are the technologies that are serving the community right now that provide the socio-technical solution for you to protect that IP that runs your org? Right. Now, the, the differentiable techie pieces of it that actually make GitOps a technical evolution beyond continuous delivery and, you know, that make it novel and its own thing within kind of DevOps culture and what it's doing, the value prop is Kubernetes has fast reconcile loops. It's got like these subscriber things that allow you to push events around and do it in a consistent way. And you can do distributed computing and everything has a formal API now and we have application specific abstractions that are not just muddied up in a bunch of old Linux tools. So it's like so, the stuff is new and it's real, you know? But, okay. But so you just mentioned Kubernetes and that we, we, we jumped from the, uh, the motive to the very specific yes. very quickly there uh, uh, is GitOps. Does GitOps presume Kubernetes? No. Okay. Uh, Kubernetes but, is a great technology that is, that lends itself well to GitOps techniques, um, sure. GitOps habits. Um, but GitOps is absolutely not a Kubernetes specific thing. Uh, and I could point at, you know, a lot of puppet systems and, you know, be like, oh yeah, that was very GitOpsy. Okay. Okay. So you can, so the, uh, all the modern GitOps flow solution thingies that I see today, they, there's something running on Kubernetes that pulls down state changes and applies it to mm -hmm. the cluster because the cluster is where your state is. Mm -hmm. So that's, it makes sense to live right next to it, right? Yeah. In the same way that often, applications running on boxes. It's often even not just one cluster, but many as well, right? Um, okay. So GitOps is also a great solution to, in the Kubernetes space, this multi-cluster management problem. Um, you know, it's like the information has to be somewhere and it's not just going to be yeah. in one place. Yeah. Okay. So you, you need a process that could run on the same host as, or same cluster as the thing you're controlling, but you need a process somewhere that constantly monitors for changes in some container for state, let's call that Git, mm -hmm. uh, and then and then pulls that, that, that new state in and then applies it to a system in an automatic mm -hmm. constant. Yeah, you need, you need these agents or you need some sort of reactive eventing process that's reliable that allows you to promise a supply chain where yeah you can assign more authority and more providence to the in, the intellectual property, the descriptions of state that yeah. are actually stored and versioned in a place that's designed to be collaborated okay. and durable. Yeah. And so when we talk about GitOps, are we talking about, like, practically speaking, do I use GitOps to run my unit test? test? That's a great question. I don't think that GitOps is a, is a test runner, right? Okay. Now, GitOps is going to provide you the infrastructure and the systems for you to run your apps, run your compute, run whatever you need. So um, practically speaking, is it from, from the container onward, basically? Um, in the context of Kubernetes, um, then you might be thinking about containers um, and different abstractions like jobs and deployments, right? Like if yeah. you were GitOpsing your jobs, uh, Kubernetes jobs, you could absolutely use that to do all sorts of testing. Um, yeah. it's, it's a great way to attack problems like database migrations or, you know, assertions on schemas or something. 
And, uh, and that's like kind of getting into that problem space where you have inter- interesting infrastructure needs and interesting application and data needs. Right. Um, so I do think that GitOps actually provides you a great way to collaborate on those tough glue points, you know, where yeah. you're like, oh, like I, I have this thing in my code, but I also need this thing for my infrastructure, you know, and if that's what your testing system needs, then GitOps is part of that solution and can give you some strategies and tools to attack that problem. So like, say I was using Flux with Kubernetes, I might just put a job in there, you know, and whenever I, you know, whatever's actually managing my config in a more sensible abstraction, say I'm using Customize or YTT, um, that I might just like flip a bit, you know, to say, hey, for the next two months, I need to run this special class of unit tests and I'm gonna need a lot of compute to do it. So we want to run it in a pod that's not inside of our application, you know, something that doesn't affect the memory profile of something that's running or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I need to run it on this table, you know, with this, you know, schema from this version, from this SQL file that's mounted into this abstraction, you know, say a config map or a secret or something. Right. And you can, you can describe all of those infrastructure needs and satisfy your application with GitOps. Uh, and then that very complicated, you know, it's, it's like, I just described a normal thing, but like, let's admit it's complicated, right? You yeah. know, there's all of these different needs. We're gluing stuff together. So before you would need that and you would talk to somebody who knows how to log into a computer and modify some system D units. And then maybe they left some comments or a log or moved the JIRA ticket or something. That's the history. But there's so much entry and there's so much entropy. There's so much information that's lost, right? You do that stuff with GitOps these days and now, even the developer can go and look in the log and be like, oh, okay, so they did these four pieces. Now, if I need to do something similar like this in the future, maybe I can go ask that person for those four exact things again, and they're not confused and they don't forget something. Maybe I can go and open that pull request myself and just change some fields. And then somebody can tell me that I'm wrong. You know, right. and that it, it opens up this collaboration and this delegation. Yeah. You know, it, it opens up the information that's needed to actually solve the problem. And uh, I love that. And through well understood channels too. It's mm-hmm. nobody has nobody is confused about why you would use version control, right? This yeah. just fits naturally with your mental model today. And but it, this is only also now possible because the APIs that are used to glue these things together and describe these changes, they're less different from each other than they were before. Right. You know, before you needed a lot of very specialized knowledge to operate a cluster of Linux or Windows computers, you know, special file formats and all sorts of weird acronyms and system names. Now we've pulled all of those weird acronyms and system names into stuff that can be encoded into YAML and has like API groups that are organized and versioned all in the same consistent way and can be applied in a declarative way, have the same reconciliation model, you know. Kubernetes gives us the lingua franca the the absolutely that's a beautiful term for it the lingua franca of uh, infrastructure apis to satisfy your apps yeah ah that's awesome and and, okay good so so you could do so to recap you could do GitOps with subversion uh yeah svn and systemd sure and cvs and you could do GitOps with puppet right yeah so i would almost say puppet was a very solid iteration on what GitOps is, you know, like specifically, they, they tried to do it almost exactly the same way. Puppet, Chef are awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I wouldn't use them today, but 
they serve their purpose as well, right? Like for, for sure. Um, okay, so then, but, 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 but practically speaking, is it wrong to conclude that dollars to donuts, if you look for GetOps solutions in the middle of 2022, you're gonna find things that rely on Kubernetes and Git. Is that wrong? Is that a conclusion I shouldn't make? These, these are good tools. Um, I just, yeah. I'm not gonna lie to you and tell you that that is GitOps, right? No. Uh, but it is, they're good ways to do it and you're gonna find it everywhere, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, and so uh, among those options, we have uh, Argo CD, we have, um, oh gosh, what's the other, we have Flux, that's the one on which you and WeaveWorks worked. Um, and there's just a, I feel like a Tectonic, I and mean, there's just a bunch of things that you could kind of treat. Yeah, um, uh, I think- this, but. I've not used it um, per se, but uh, Rancher has a system that I'm totally blanking on the name of now. And by Rancher, I mean to find folks working on Rancher at OpenSUSE or right. at SUSE now. Right. Um, gosh, what is it called? It's, I, I, there's no way I would have forgotten this several months ago, but now I can't remember. Yeah. It's just, Rancher I tried to get at the end of the day, not enough caffeine. Yeah, I did. I did not consume coffee. I had matcha today. That's a good start. Fleet. That's what Rancher's oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Rancher system is called. They have some interesting architecture choices in Fleet. Um, their whole idea is let's make this scale super super wide, um, so that lots of edge nodes can talk to the Fleet Center and get their bundle of config very fast. And the way they do that. Um, is by putting Git at the center, but then in between the hub and all of the uh, nodes at the end, they actually are just using object stores. And so it's, you know, doesn't have the same load of um, scaling a Git platform, right? Now you're just scaling object storage, uh, which oh. I think for, you know, certain types of deployments where you're not using, um, like a, you know, a Git service that's super reliable like GitHub, um, could be very attractive. You know, you don't have to run your own Git server that can handle you know, 4,000 to it. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. And uh, even GitHub goes down, you know, it has yeah, gone so down. With Fleet, you can just point them at some reliable object storage instead. And that's uh, pretty smart. Granted, there's, you know, there's ways to scale Git as well. And, um, but yeah, just hats off to the folks at Fleet for taking an interesting uh, design decision. You know, of course, um, I know less about Argo CD than I know about Flux, being someone right. who's worked on core design, you know, parts of Flux. Um, but uh, I do know that these projects kind of originate from different incentives and uh, that they've both, both built vibrant communities and they have valid use cases. Um, yeah. And every day the projects become more similar to each other in a way. But so why um, flux? Don't, don't you don't have to do why not X, Y, and Z, but why flux? You know, flux is awesome. Yeah, I can talk about why flux all day. Um, yes, have a lot of practice doing that. And flux is great because I'm just going to start with the community and the governance, the incentives. So you know, I was talking earlier about what about WeaveWorks really drew me to getting to know the people, right? And it's that Weave really understands how to do open source in a very authentic way. And Flux is one of those projects that started out in V1, attracting a lot of users, right? And then developing a high enough feature velocity where those users were served very well. They were able to perform their own custom pipelines and do all sorts of things in this 
tiny little monolithic program that you'd install into a namespace and it would go and do things in your cluster. And that was the beginning of GitOps and Kubernetes, right? There's also GitOps that we blogged about with like Terraform and GitOps that we blogged about, um, you know, Weave works with, um, with like Ansible and, you know, other systems. But um, yeah, so there's, there's this, how do you do open source in a really honest and community first way? And Flux does that very well. It's very inspired and modeled after the sort of governance, um, API versioning promises and style of communication that we see that makes Kubernetes successful. Um, so, and, and we've seen this play out now, kind of the early stages of Kubernetes, you could tell, oh, this is gonna be big because big players in the ecosystem, as well as innovative uh, folks from smaller companies are adopting this. And they're not just using it, but they're also filing bugs. They're also talking about the issues that they're running into. And then they're contributing engineering time. We're seeing those three things in flux, right? We're seeing contributions from uh, Azure, from D2IQ, from VMware, from, you know, like all of the big players in the space because the software is so well factored with flux version two and it's encouraging extension. It's got the API versioning promises that you need to build things that last uh, to build your own integrations on top. And it's just a great design. You know, we've broken out the monolith that was Flux One into some Kubernetes, Kubernetes native pieces of software. These controllers now will collaborate with each other in order to deliver a GitOps platform uh, that has a shape that meets your needs, right? And so like every organization is different and I'm talking about how GitOps is actually a social solution, right? It's a social solution to continuously delivering your infrastructure to satisfy your apps, to run your business. and so every organization is going to need a little bit of a different way to hold Flux. And Flux likes that. Um, it doesn't force opinions. It doesn't force org structure. It's not going to fit weirdly into your different teams because the concept of tenancy is emergent from the way that Flux's pieces compose with each other. Now, the other thing is just, oh, man, like I wish I could describe to you. Right. The engineering behind Flux is so good. Like yes. these people that I had the privilege of working with, I mean, it's almost a bad thing, but if you look at the statistics of all developers on GitHub, Stefan Prodan is in the top 10. Like he's, he's a prolific contributor. They, they should wow. do a GitHub dev blog on him. Like <laughs> Hida Boyles, the maintainer, the primary maintainer of the Helm controller, such a brilliant person. Like I, I wouldn't want anybody promising me APIs that like there's, there's no better person than Hida, you know? And, and so these people, they're just incredible. And the software that they've built, it's as good as the software it's inspired by. Flux is high quality. It is built the Kubernetes way with Kubernetes quality. And you cannot say that about the majority of, of components in the ecosystem. You know, there's, there's a select few that meet that engineering bar and are actually filling out all of the different things to provide you a very satisfying, extendable experience. Cool. Sounds very spring-like, uh, just a very clean, 
Yeah. It's like, you look at this oh. thing and you're like, wow, I'm proud. I'm building something on top of flux, you know, yeah. like I'm a, I'm, I'm a proud user of this. Yeah. And it just I'm takes a- care of you, you know, and, and the community is awesome. It's just full of kind people, really smart folks, quality engineering. Uh, I, I would recommend anybody use flux anytime. Yeah. If, and because if it doesn't do what you need to do today, first of all, it's flexible enough to be reworked if needed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and there's friendly people that are willing to willing and able to help you. That's everything yeah. you want to hear in a technology discussion. Yeah. Thank you for uh, allowing me to rant about my friends. Cause I mean, they're just really bright people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure they, I'm sure the feeling is mutual. I was just about to say one of the, uh, one of the uh, best uh, qualities of that community is, as you just said, community of which you are one of the members, my friend. So it's, uh, it's awesome. Um, I don't know. I don't know what we, we, we covered a little bit of everything today. It's been, it's been a journey. Mm. Yeah. Everything from what makes businesses work to why are internet systems so centralized to what the heck is GitOps. And why Zoom? No, how Zoom. How Zoom. How? That's, that's actually the really fun technical question, isn't it? How the Zoom Every single one of my podcasts is just me being baffled and grateful that somehow Zoom has worked, you know? Um, <laughs> I don't know, we're the secrets out. We're not in the same room. Yeah, I mean, I keep expecting it to fail and it doesn't, but uh, when it does, I will say I was not surprised, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I keep expecting it to, because it just doesn't make sense that something can do what it does like that at such a scale and be so good. And I think it's in large part to amazing people like yourself who make the, uh, make, you know, the, the plumb the depths of infrastructure so the rest of us can get to production faster. And I appreciate you. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. You know, s- send a thank you to your fellow infrastructure engineer, all of you yes. Java software developers, you know, hug and up, find a DevOps person and give them a hug. They need it. Yeah, I promise exactly. you. If they want, you know, Ask first. Of course, yes. Yeah. Don't spread COVID. Offer, offer a hug, potentially. Yeah, there you go. That should be you know them well enough. National DevOps. There's a national sysadmin day. Really, that should be rebranded as like national. Uh, national hug a sysadmin day? What day is that? No, there's national. Isn't there a national sysadmin day? Not a hug. National sysadmin. Well, that would be the day. Yeah. But they should rebrand it to DevOps Day. National System Administrator Appreciation Day is July 29th. <gasps> oh, it's coming up. Yeah. It is coming up. coming up. July 29th. Count down the days. We got 22 days to 23rd. 20, yeah, 23rd annual System Day. So, um, so basically, I think those people should be, it's an old, it predates the term DevOps. But really, I don't call people system system administrators today. They're DevOps or SREs or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. So, okay. Uh, whatever anyway. the trendy term is that helps people get paid, you know? Right. Well, sure. Yeah, exactly. So uh, at this point, you may be thinking, great, I get it. I'm, I'm reading a blog, by the way, systemminday.com. Um, uh, it's only the, what exactly is system in day? Oh, it's only the single greatest 24 hours on the planet and pretty much the most important holiday of the year. It's also the perfect opportunity to pay tribute to the heroic men and women who come rain or shine, prevent disasters, keep IT secure, and put out tech fires left and right. At this point, you may be thinking, great, I get it. My sysadmin is a rock star, but now what? Glad you asked. Proper observation of sysadmin day includes, but it's not limited to, cakes and ice cream, pizza, cards, gifts, words of gratitude, custom t-shirts, celebrating the epic greatness of your sysadmin, balloons, confetti, and did I say gifts? So, okay, nowhere in that list do I see hugs. 
so I think we should change the holiday to be DevOps Day, and we should also have Hubs, a you know, potentially suggested as well, a subset yeah. of the celebration. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but but I think we're in spirit on the same uh, same YAML file, same page, same YAML file here. So it would be funny um, if like the ceremonial thing that you did was like restart a server. Yeah. You know? Oh, and I used to change the devs. Yeah. I wonder what my I used to it used to be so fascinating to me to see what my uptime was for my old Linux machines at home. I had machines that I never I because I you know I, mm. I I had uptime of like years, and now yeah. it's like well that's a bad sign. You've got we've probably got security patches that need to be up and installed or whatever. But if I could keep a machine up and not restarted for more than a year, I was always happy. You know, now it, it seems like that reminds me of the some some of the very smart folks. That, at Docker and in the Docker community, they built right. a very forward-thinking piece of software management, uh, infrastructure management called InfraKit. Uh, mm -hmm. And I nerded out about InfraKit for a little bit. Um, they were making all the kits. There was Swarm Kit and Policy Kit and Network Kit and all that. But uh, yeah, InfraKit was cool. One of the things you could do is you could define a, a group of immutable servers. It was this idea like, let's have some immutable infrastructure, right? We're gonna, we're gonna let you use Linux kit to build these immutable server images. Then you're gonna use infra kit to go spin up a pool of them and do some networking things in AWS or whatever. And once you have that, then we're gonna give you this toy called negative uptime, right? It's how many seconds does your server have to live? before InfraKit yanks it out of the infrastructure, right? <laughs> it's like, if your time is up, you know, I'm replacing you with another piece of immutable infrastructure. You are stale. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably better. I want my code to be designed in such a way that it doesn't, it stays our numbered, you know? It doesn't expect to be here longer than it needs to be. Yeah. And it's like, you know, just recognizing that in the infrastructure world, like nothing is truly immutable, right? Right. You know, you can yeah. have bits go bad on a network card, of even if it's a virtual NIC, you know, there might be some bug in the VIO driver or something. And, you know, like just, you gotta be replacing that stuff because entropy is your enemy, you know? So, <laughs> so make entropy your friend, introduce change. Hey, yeah, I embrace change. Yeah, I, I'm a fan. Um, all right, my friend. Well, we've talked about it. There we go, we did it. We, we talked about everything. Where do people, and, and I know this is, this is a foregone conclusion. So when people wanna learn more about you, and all the cool stuff you're working on. Uh, are you on the internet? And if so, where do you want to be found? I am on the internet. My DMs are open on Twitter. Uh, we'll see how long I can keep that up. The uptime on my DMs has been pretty good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm, on, I'm at C-A-P-I-L-E-I-G-H. That's Kapili uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can hit me up on GitHub too, or at least follow me there, StealthyBox. Uh, Kubernetes Slack, StealthyBox. Uh, a couple other Slacks you'll find me around as well. And uh, yeah, say hi to me on the internet. You know, it's like <laughs> if you want people to find you. Yeah. That's also, I mean, physically, I think you and I both will maybe be in Seattle next week. Uh, well, I mean, this this recording we're recording this before our Spring One Tour Seattle edition. Who knows if this episode will go out in time? Uh, maybe we'll yeah. have seen you there when you listen to this. So. Maybe I will just put it out tonight. Actually, I podcast is due today. It's Thursday. Um, and now that you've tied this to a particular moment in history, uh, I think I should just release it tonight. That'll be good. That'll be one of the, I haven't done this in years, right? Or where I had a recording of an episode recording that I released. That release. Yeah. 
well, if this goes out, we'll see you at a spring one tour Seattle, uh, or maybe at some of our other spring one tour stops. I hear we might be doing Amsterdam sometime in November for all of you, uh, Java and spring and Kubernetes nerds over there. Spring one tour is awesome. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm proud of you. You didn't mention the year, but I did earlier. That's my fault. If I had just left that out, then even if I didn't release this in time for Spring Wind Tour Seattle in 2022, who knows? We could have had one in 2025. You know, this could have still been, you know, germane. And there but, would uh, still be a national sysadmin day as well. Yeah. yeah but or maybe they would have renamed it to DevOps Day. Right? Yeah. And also I tied it to, I mentioned the 23 years. I am my own worst enemy here. I've made this, I've tied this podcast to an expiry date. So yeah, I've got to put an it in. Expiring certificates or a negative uptime for your servers. Exactly. Hey man, thank you for uh, joining me today. It's been a lot of fun as always. I'll see you in Seattle. Later nerds. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine afternoon? I just got back from New York City last Thursday. Then I got home. Uh, I, I was on, I was in New York City, by the way, for the Spring One Tour New York edition, and I took uh, my kid and her grandma, uh, you know, to New York City. So the three of us returned, connected with my partner. Uh, all of us, you know, then you know, after repacking and showering as needed, uh, jumped into our car and took a road trip going up to Southern Oregon, Crater Lake in Oregon. I live in Northern California or like Middle California uh, in San Francisco. So we drove from San Francisco all the way up through Northern California, all the way across the border into Oregon uh, and, uh, you know, all the way to Crater Lake. And along the way, of course, we stopped for various waterfalls and national parks and hikes and all that. Oh, it was so much fun. The New York trip, New York City trip was a ton of fun. Uh, and and so was the uh, Northern California road trip. Boy, am I just glad to be home. It's been a, a whirlwind run of meeting amazing people, traveling, road tripping, uh, hiking, etc. Uh, and of course, uh, as much as I'm enjoying the lull in the action, uh, the, the action will resume sooner rather than later. Um, it'll be, uh, I'll be in Seattle next week uh, and I'm bringing my, bringing some of my family just like last week. Um, we're going to be in Seattle for the Spring One Tour Seattle edition. It's one of the original cloud native cities along with San Francisco. Uh, and yeah, for good reason, right? It's home to both Microsoft and the Azure team uh, and Amazon Web Services. As you can imagine, it's going to be quite an amazing show. Uh, and just as with New York City, I'm bringing some of my family. Uh, it's summer break after all, and I don't want my kid just sitting at home doom scrolling through social media. That's my job. So anyway, I have some suggestions on good local food. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a direct message on Twitter. One of the amazing people who will be there is my colleague Lee Capilli, who is a contributor to Kubernetes and an enthusiastic developer advocate for all things infrastructure. He's helped me out countless times before and I love working with him. I was so excited when he joined the team uh, and could teach me all things Flux uh, and when he finally agreed to do the show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the discussion uh, with him as much as I have. Uh, he's just a really insightful, profoundly uh, talented person. So it was just really great to have this chance to catch up and and uh, and learn. We talked about GitOps, Kubernetes, Puppet, Chef, continuous integration and delivery, uh, how Zoom, you know, the video chatting app scales, uh, what it is to be a developer advocate, Flux, and a million other things. So please.
A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs's Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs's Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.